Hosea, Hosea chapter 9 this night, as we'll read the entirety of this chapter, all 17 verses, beginning in verse 1. There we read, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floors and wine vats shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offering of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifice shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snares on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Though they came to Baal, Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame, I became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them miscarrying wombs and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their, rot, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers amongst the nations. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So I mentioned this morning, we live in a country that has been very much blessed of God. We sing in the song America the beautiful oh beautiful for spacious skies for amber waves of grain for purple mountains majesty above the fruited plain America America God shed his grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea and that song is correct we are blessed with ample Food and privilege. It's a privilege to live in a great country as this. 
a country that people are trying to get into rather than flee from. And we can thank God for it. But at the same time, we'd all admit that abundances can have downsides. We have grown so accustomed to simple luxuries that we become bothered or annoyed if we do not have them. Sometimes we call such things first world problems. Such problems as having poor phone signal, having no Wi-Fi, online deliveries taking more than two days, running out of toilet paper, getting blisters from new shoes, having a low battery, running out of hot water, a 30-minute wait in the doctor's office. All things that we would consider, quote-unquote, problems. And they're only problems because we are used to having these things and, in fact, would consider them essentials of life. And we can laugh and chuckle at such things knowing that we have it pretty good. But there are far more dangerous things to wealth and privilege. And that is the attitude of ease and comfortability that all is well. And as a result, we can have a sense of self-sustaining self-reliability. That we don't really need God that we can live as little gods, we can call our own shots, we can do what we want, when we want, as we please. And again, that can go back, can trace its roots in many ways, but I would have to say part of that is because we have such wealth, ways of providing for ourselves. And this is why the scripture continually warns us and says, beware Watch out. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, oftentimes when we hear those things or perhaps read those things in our Bible reading, we don't think that we are a part of the rich that the Lord is speaking of. Or we might think, well, if I ever became rich, then I would have to worry about that. No, I think all those verses would have Americans clearly in its sights because we are rich, we are blessed, we are prosperous. We are the country of amber waves of grain and purple mountains and fruited plains. And we should be thankful for it, but at the same time also beware. And I think that is exactly what Hosea's warning is here in chapter 9 that the people are rejoicing in the harvest, not unlike what we did last week in this country with Thanksgiving, but they are rejoicing in a way that is sinful. They are getting drunk, in a sense, on their own prosperity, leading them to greater and greater sin. And Hosea essentially says that you need to remember who all of this prosperity, all of this blessing comes from, And where you came from, your roots, and where you will go, where you will return if you do not change your ways. And so we'll see that in two points tonight, from fruited plains to forsaken wilderness. First, from fruited plains. Israel, as you know, is an agricultural 
country. Almost all commerce, all jobs were directly related to something in agriculture, growing, harvesting crops. And chapter 9 seems to be at harvest time. We see the language of threshing floor and wine vats there in verses 1 and 2. We see that of feasts and festivals and seems to be a joyous time and much celebration ongoing. I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that both of my grandfathers were farmers. And I remember in the fall it being a joyous time, especially if it was a good harvest, if it was a good season. Because as a farmer, sometimes there weren't good years, but when there were indeed good years, when you saw your labor, in a sense, being paid off, when the grain was in the silo, when the barn was full of hay, it was a time to, in a sense, rest and relax and be thankful for the blessings that the Lord had given and to have a little bit of downtime in the colder months. Celebration is indeed a good thing, a God-given thing. Today in our house, we're celebrating the life of a little girl, a little nine-year-old that has her birthday today. And God doesn't frown upon celebration. In fact, he commands it. Keep your finger here in Hosea 9 and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Here we see one of the festivals, one of the feasts that Israel was to celebrate. And in verse 13, we read this. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughters, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. If you've been with us in the Sunday school class, as Brother Ed has been going through Ruth, this might be the feast that was being celebrated when Ruth goes to Boaz. And this is why Boaz was sleeping on the threshing floor, because there was a public feast, a public festival going on when they were gathering in. And notice it says that they were to celebrate seven days. That's a pretty good celebration. We only celebrate usually one, but they celebrated for seven. And this was commanded by God. And notice it was to be a feast unto the Lord, because as it says there, the Lord your God has blessed you in all your produce and in the works of your hands. And they were to be thankful to the Lord and in the Lord. And they were to be, as it says there at the end of verse 15, altogether joyous because of the Lord's provision. Well, as we come back then to Hosea chapter 9, we see something going on here. Was it the festival of booths spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 16? Well, we're not sure, but it seems to be something similar to it. 
that there is grain and there is wine, there's threshing floor and wine vats and there's celebration and rejoicing, feasting and festivals. Except one major problem. They had forgotten the purpose. They were not doing it unto the Lord. They were not grateful and joyful in the Lord for his mighty provision. They had taken something, if this truly was what was taking place, they were taking a command of God, something that was to be celebrated, something was to be enjoyed, and completely, in many ways, perverting it. In fact, it seems that they were giving thanks to another. They were seemingly giving thanks to Baal himself. And that's what it talks about there in verse 1. You have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floor. And in verse 10, we even see the name of Baal. Baal Peor mentioned there. And Baal was a God that was celebrated amongst the nations, especially during times of harvest because Baal was the god of fertility both of crops and of people and so the celebration would include sexual perversion and gluttony and drunkenness we see all of this associated with the worship of Baal this is how you would celebrate the abundance and the harvest and the lavishness and give thanks to Baal the blessings of God had turned into a perverted worship, an avenue of sin rather than an avenue of thanks. And yet God had blessed Israel with all of these provisions, not only during the time of Hosea, but throughout their history. You remember when the spies went into the land to spy it out when they were about to go into the land, what was the report? Yes, there was giants in the land, but they also said that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They carried out clusters of grapes that had to be carried on a pole between two men because they were so large and so heavy. In other words, the Lord was giving them a good land, a fertile land. God was not giving them a land that nobody wanted, where nobody else was. He wasn't giving them a dried piece of the desert. No, he was giving them a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's symbolism in there, isn't there? God is redeeming the earth, as that Christmas hymn says, is far as the curse is found, redeeming it back to what it was meant to be, what it was created to be. If you remember way back in the beginning chapters of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what was the place that God placed Adam and Eve? He placed them in a garden, a beautiful and luscious and fruit-filled garden. A garden unlike anything that we have ever seen. I'm sure several of you have seen beautiful gardens. I've seen beautiful gardens. I've gone with even several of you to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, which are wonderful and beautiful, but I'm sure those gardens nor any gardens on this earth compared to the Garden of Eden. And yet, Israel 
was to be a small picture of what God was redeeming, that he was restoring, in a sense, to this earth that which he originally created. And I think we even see some of the evidence of that in this chapter. Yet, the chief of his creation, mankind, were not using it in joyous worship in grateful thanksgiving, but rather in an opportunity for sin, getting drunk on the prosperity, perverting themselves on their freedoms. Yet before we look in judgment, we have to look at ourselves and even this day, and even in our own country here, are there ways that we are doing the same? Are there ways that we are acting in a similar fashion? I always find it ironic that the day after Thanksgiving is the biggest shopping day of the year. That we go from one day of being very thankful and grateful and praising the Lord for all that we have, and the very next day we turn around and go, now what else can I get? What else can I add? Or perhaps we make very good wages, but yet it's not enough, and go into debt so that we can have more, and we can have excess of things perhaps that we don't really actually need, or we can weary ourselves in chasing the almighty dollar, and what extents we'll go to have it, and what we'll do to achieve to get it, and Yet even when we do achieve it, or when we do get it, does it really bring joy? Does it really bring contentment? No, it never does. Or perhaps we would play the lottery in the hopes of striking it rich, and even if it did, would that actually bring more good or more evil to your life? I think the history would show that it wouldn't bring ultimate good. It wouldn't bring ultimate happiness and, in fact, would bring a lot of problems with it. The other night I was watching a movie with my children and there was a line in it that struck me that says, if you're not good enough without it, you will not be enough with it. And obviously that can be taken in the wrong way, but I think that is true with money and possessions. If you're not good enough without it, you will not be enough with it. Greed and lust will never provide or fulfill what you think it may. Again, as I said, we shouldn't think of these as proclivities that are out there somewhere. These are proclivities in our own heart, our own sinful proclivities that we are drawn to. And so we can't look at a passage like this and say, how can they think that way? How could they do that? No, we need to look at our own selves, our own hearts, and say, heaven help us, that we would not as well be drawn away by our own prosperity, by our own riches. And what we see in this passage is that as quickly as it comes, as quickly as it can be taken away, And so we see the second part of this passage. It goes from fruited plains to forsaken wilderness. As a result of the provision and excess and the forgetting of God and forgetting of who it all came from, 
The same God who gave it is the same God who takes it away. And there's several metaphors here. Perhaps you heard them as we read through this passage. And the Lord talks about how Israel was when he found them. He, he likens them to uh, crops. He likens them to plants. We see in verse 10, he said, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. Again, in verse 13, Ephraim was like a young palm planted in a meadow. All of these are analogies, in a sense, to what Israel was when God found them. That they were as nothing. They were grapes in the wilderness, wild grapes. They were fig trees in their first year, not producing much figs or much of anything. They were small trees in a giant meadow with no real hope. And the Lord says, that is what you were. And so, therefore, all that you have gained, all your fruitful lifestyle, all your prosperity has come by my hands, not by yours. That God took them out of captivity in Egypt. And when they went down into Egypt, they were only 70, a family of 70. And yet, when they left, there were too many to count. And God gave them, as we mentioned, this land, this land flowing with milk and honey, only for them to forsake God, to get drunk on the blessings as it says at the end of verse 10, they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. And as I said before, I think this is worship to Baal that was going on. And I think the Lord reminds them that it's not Baal that gives prosperity. It's not Baal that is the fertility God. No, it is God Almighty and that's why it says in verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And then it goes on in verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Indeed, it's not Baal that provides children. It's not Baal that provides life in the womb. Rather, it is I that provides all of these things. And it even goes on to say that the children that will be provided, I will bereave them, it says in verse 12, until none is left. This is a gloomy judgment upon the nation of Israel, allowing them to see that this false worship that they're entering into is not leading them to anything good, but rather to receive less and less until they have nothing at all. And so in verse 3 of chapter 9, the Lord says, They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They're going to return to Egypt, not literally, of course, but as 
Assyria comes to capture them, even as we heard about that this morning, that they are going to return to captivity. And you can think of the sad reality of this, that they came from slaves and they entered into freedom. They came from nothing and entered into everything. And now they're going to return to nothing. Return to being slaves again. And so what we see in this chapter, beginning in verse 1, the Lord says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. And as you go to the very end, he tells them why. Because Ephraim will be stricken. Their root is to be dried up until they bear no fruits. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers around the nation. You can understand why this was not a popular message when Hosea gave this prophecy. And that is why in verse 7, seems to seem that seems to me that they were calling Hosea a fool. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. They're trying to dismiss, dismiss what he is saying. They do not want to hear it. Their ears are plugged to the truth because they want to continue on in their evil and sinful and wicked ways. And yet verse 8 Hosea says, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. What is it that a watchman would do? A watchman would sit on the wall and call out about danger and invading armies. And Hosea says, I am that watchman calling out, calling and sounding the alarms. And yet... There's no one seemingly there to listen. Hosea and all of the prophets are blowing the trumpet, but there's no one there to hear. Instead, they are just called fools. And it's interesting to see that this is always the case. This is how the prophets were always treated. And even as we enter into the New Testament, we see the same. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, came to this earth and yet... He was called a fool, one that was possessed by demons. The Apostle Paul was told by Festus that he was out of his mind. The counsel of God is always considered a foolishness by the world to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so how do we take a chapter like this? How do we make sure that we are not like those during the day of Israel, not listening to the alarms, not listening to the dangers, and not uh, being warned by these things? Well, I think there are several things that we can learn from this chapter, several applications that I think we should personally apply to ourselves. And the first is this, that we should not be enamored by this world. That this world has seemingly so much to offer, and yet Ecclesiastes says it's vanity, vanity, vanity. Chasing after a wind. It's like trying to grasp vapor. Trying to grasp steam as it comes up in the shower. It seems like there's something there, something of substance. But when you go to 
grab hold of it, it is elusive. There's nothing to hold on to because it is in itself nothingness. That is the things of this world. As the hymn writer so rightly puts it, the worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to gilded toys of dust, boast of wealth and fame and pleasure, but only Jesus will I trust. Francis Schaeffer talks about as a boy by his house, he would have to walk by a city dump. And he says that even as a boy, I realized that I saw there almost everything people spend their money for. That is where their investments ended. Go to a showroom and see the pride with which a man drives out his new car. And then think of an automobile graveyard of rusting, stripped, junked cars abandoned by a city street. They are shells screaming out tremendous sermons against all practical materialism. You're fools, you're fools, you're fools, Schaefer says. Indeed, we are not to be enamored by the things of this world or think that they will provide something more than what God has created for them to provide for us. And so let us not be fooled by the things of this world. Let us not get caught up in the spirit of worldlinessism. Second, we should stay rooted upon the foundation of truth. Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. When we hear the voice of Jesus in his word, we need to know that it is indeed the voice of our shepherd. And so therefore, it's not only good for us to read the truth, but we must continually confess the truth. And Monday night in our men's Bible study, we talked about the power in confessing truth. And that's why we read the Psalms out loud and we confess the creeds and we confess the shorter catechism like we did tonight. And for many in this modern culture, that is a a foreign concept. And it might feel somewhat strange when you do that with people around you that you may not know. But why do we do that? Because there is power in confessing the truth. Because we are like sheep that are straying. And that is our tendency, is to stray from the truth. And so God's word, God's truth, is like the shepherd's crook that draws us back again. And we say that there is substance here. There is substance for our soul. Like the scripture says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord. And so reading, confessing, Hearing the truth is always needed so that we would not be like the Israelites that saw the word of the Lord as foolishness, as the spirit of madness. Rather, we would hear the truth of God's word and we'd say that is the truth and everything else is a lie. Everything else is foolishness and madness. And so, again, we must stay rooted upon God's word and the truthfulness of it to our hearts and to our lives. Second, or third, we need to remember that Christ came to redeem us. 
And he also came to redeem the world from the curse of sin. This chapter talks a lot about fruitfulness and that fruitfulness turning into barren land. And I can't help but think of Adam and Eve. Where were they when they were first tempted? They were in the garden. And then compare that to when Jesus was tempted. Jesus was not tempted in the garden, was he? He was tempted in the wilderness, in the desert. In a sense, we see the results of sin on the earth from the time of Adam to the time of Christ. And yet, this season, what are we saying? That Christ came into this sinful, barren world. He entered into the desert. He faced all the temptations of Satan for us, for our sake, as well as for the sake of his creation. But that didn't come without a cost. He had to die on a dead tree. He had to wear the the crown of thorns and thistles. In other words, he took on the full curse of this world's barrenness, of this world's sin and fallenness, all so that it could be redeemed. All of creation one day will be redeemed, us included. And so that leads me to my fourth and final application. The new heavens and the new earth will be far better. And Jesus indeed is coming back again. And as he comes back, he will enter into enter in and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And that place will be greater than Eden. That there will be nothing in this life even compared to that, And so therefore we must keep our eyes upon that glory that is yet to come. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, again, most likely the last epistle that he wrote, perhaps even days before he died, he said, I suffer as I do. And he was sitting in a prison cell when he wrote this. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to to me. He says, I suffer, but I am not ashamed because I know that there's something far greater and more glorious that awaits than anything in this place. And so he endured it for the sake of that which is yet to be revealed. Beloved, we are to be thankful for all that we have. We're not to be ashamed of it by any means. But we're to use it for his purpose and for his glory and praise and thanksgiving to him. This night, let me close with one of my favorite prayers from Proverbs 38 and 9, where it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor. And steal and profane the name of my God. Indeed, that is a good prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me so much that I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Nor give me too little that I must steal and profane the name of my God. Indeed, as the Lord taught us to pray, give me my daily bread. 
Indeed, in Christ, we have our daily bread. The Lord Jesus Christ provides everything that we need, both physically and spiritually. Let us pray.